0: Good morning. As we continue to prepare ourselves to hear the preaching of the word, I would like to read for you from Mark, 7th chapter, 1st through the 13th verses. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him and when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of the disciples were eating their bread with impure hands that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as a washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes ask him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the traditions of men. He was also saying to them, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have, that will help you is Corban. That is to say, given to God. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. Thus invalidating the word of God By your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and the hearing of his holy word.
1: I was talking to Greg this morning. One of my favorite parts of the week is watching people pull into the parking lot on Sundays and to watch the saints assemble to worship our God and to praise our Savior and attend to his word. And I'm looking forward to the day when we see from north south east and west people walking from our neighborhood and just families beginning to all come to be in one place at one time to be able to praise our god together and it's a glorious privilege to do what we're about to enjoy this morning so i'm really glad that you all are here with us when my wife and i had just come to denton bible back in 2000 a couple years later we led a mission trip of missionary trainees to monterey mexico To learn cross-cultural principles in a cross-cultural setting. So we went down for three and a half weeks, lived with Christian families in Monterey, Mexico, worked with Carlos Astorga at La Iglesia Biblico Unidos en Cristo, (laughs) e-book, that Dave and Jen ministered while they were down there. And every morning we would talk and teach, and then we would send the kids out in the afternoon, the kids, the young adults, to practice what they had been learning in class. And I remember Rachel, who was one and a half at the time, we bathed her in this little igloo ice cooler that we had. And I always remember Rachel in the ice cooler getting her bath. But at the end of the three and a half weeks, I sat down with our host, Pastor Astorga, and I said, thank you so much for allowing us to be here, for serving us. How could we have been better guests? Is there anything that we could have done that would have been a better blessing or more sensitive to your church? He said, there is one thing. He said, shorts. You wore shorts." And I said, well, you know, we had talked to our people about modesty and how in Mexican culture, they are typically more modestly dressed than we are. But then we noticed you wear shorts, the other elders wear shorts. And so we thought it would be okay if we wore shorts. He goes, ah, we're pastors, but you're missionaries. And we realized that there were religious traditions going on there that we were unaware of, that there were standards of holiness that we didn't appreciate, and so we caused offense unintentionally. And it was kind of ironic that during a trip trying to teach cultural sensitivity, we had been insensitive the whole time. (laughs) But (laughs) But that can happen, that there are unwritten religious rules that when we violate them, we can cause offense. And that raises the question of who is able to set the rules for religion. And what is proper for the people of God? And what does please our Lord that crosses various traditions and understandings? And that is the theme of our text this morning, which is in Mark chapter 7. So I invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark chapter 7, where we will be looking at verses 1 through 13. And as you open your Bibles, I'll open us in another word of prayer. Father, we thank you for another day of life. We thank you that you have created us. We are here because you made us. We live because you breathed life into us. We have the hope of heaven, those of us who know Christ as our Savior, because you sent your Son to live and die and rise for us. We're able to breathe, to see, to enjoy fellowship, because these are good gifts from a good God. So we want to pause to give you thanks. And to pray that your spirit who inspired this Bible would now open our minds and hearts to understand and apply it. That we would leave better appreciating who you are, what you desire of us. That we would want to make it our ambition to please our Lord by conforming our life to Christ and sharing the good news of the gospel with those around us. So be with us these moments we have to share, we ask in your son's name. Amen. Our text begins... With the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him, when Jesus and his disciples—or I'm sorry, when they had come from Jerusalem. Now, the Pharisees were a group of Jews who were especially careful to obey the law of God very meticulously. Jesus says that they would even tear off a tenth of their their mint, their dill, their cumin. So, if you were putting herbs into your food, you would tear off a tenth of it, set it aside for God because they were meticulous in their adherence to the law of God. Today, they would have been heavily recruited as IRS agents and OSHA inspectors. (laughs) And they didn't just want the law obeyed, but they built what was called a fence around the law to make sure that no one violated it. And so if the law said, do not work on the Sabbath, that raised the question, what constitutes work? And so they had this long tradition of dialogue on how much could you lift What type of fire could be kept? What did food preparation look for? How far could you walk? Because everything had to be done to keep someone from violating that and there grew this long, large, extra-biblical tradition of what righteousness ought to look like. And the scribes were legal experts in the Old Testament law who again were zealous for people understanding and applying the law of God in every detail. And we've met these groups before always in opposition to Jesus. And so we saw back in Mark chapter 2 that when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? They didn't approve of Jesus' company. They didn't like the fact that he was a friend of sinners. Later it says the Pharisees were saying to Jesus, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath, at least according to their traditions? Chapter 3, the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul. He cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. And here again we see a group that has come from Jerusalem. We're not sure if it was the scribes, the Pharisees, both or partial of both. But an official delegation has come from the capital to investigate Jesus and to oppose him. And we're going to see time and again the scribes and the Pharisees and other religious leaders challenging Jesus, confronting Jesus, plotting against Jesus until they help falsely uh, accuse Jesus and then stand there mocking at the foot of the cross when he hung their crucified because of their actions. So this is part of a running motif through the gospel of Jesus coming to proclaim the kingdom of God and to urge people to repent and believe. And rather than rallying around the good news that God's Messiah had come as promised, we see that the religious authorities are opposing him and plotting against him because they don't follow the rules that they prescribe, which means that, they, that he doesn't acknowledge their authority over the religious affairs in Israel. So that's what's going on. And now they gather around him, not to dialogue, not to discuss, not to listen and learn, but to challenge, confront, and oppose because they have another bone to pick with Jesus over the action of His disciples. Namely, that some of His disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, that they were unwashed. Now, this isn't an issue of hygiene. Uh, One can imagine that the Pharisees would have been germaphobes and clean freaks, but that's not the issue that they have, but rather what ritual cleanliness looks like. Mark's going to go on to describe to his Gentile audience what these Jewish customs would have involved by giving three examples of the kind of things that they would have done, beginning in verse 3. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots, And the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with unclean hands? So we have three examples that before they eat they would wash their hands thoroughly. Uh, The Greek phrase is to the fist. And we don't really know what this means. Some think that they would have put their hands in water up to the fist or the wrist completely enclosing it. Others that they would have uh, put water in a fist and then poured it over the other hand. But at the end of the day, the important thing was that the hands had to be ritually washed before you partook of food. One step further is that if you went to the marketplace to buy the food, because you might have come in contact with Gentiles or unclean people, you had to take a complete bath. You had to immerse yourself to wash any of the filth of the world, any contact with the unclean from you before you prepared the food. And then the cups, the pitchers and the the copper pots used to prepare and to serve and to use the food. They also had to be washed thoroughly. Three main things to observe here. One is that this is the disciples' actions, but Jesus is confronted because a rabbi was responsible for the actions of his disciples. When someone became a student of a rabbi, you were sitting under his teaching and you were observing his behavior because you were trying to emulate what he taught and did. And so if the disciples were misbehaving, it was the responsibility of the rabbi to address it. So if you've been a teacher on a field trip, or a coach on an athletic event, or a band director or anything, and the kids are out of control, who do they go to? That's your responsibility because you should have kept those kids in line. So that's what's going on here. Secondly, that this is having to do, again, not with hygiene or sanitation, but rather with ritual cleanliness. One of the ways that God taught his people to be holy because he was holy was by instituting holiness laws in the Mosaic law. And so you could not eat certain kinds of food like pork and shellfish, because he was teaching them to discriminate between the clean and the unclean. Um, If you had come in contact with any dead person or animal, if you had had certain bodily emissions, then you were ceremonially unclean, which meant you could not approach God at the tabernacle or the temple until you had made yourself clean, which raised the question, of what does it take to approach God? What does cleanliness look like in the eyes of God? And then thirdly, that this is really involving not just the rules that were broken, but the authority that set the rules. Three times in these verses it mentions the tradition of the elders, verse 3. The things that they had received in order to reserve, meaning the things that had been passed down to them so that they could keep them. And then in verse 5, the tradition of the elders. Throughout these verses, we're going to see time and again that this was ultimately an issue of authority. Who was able to prescribe what God's people had to do to get right with God? Who had the right to establish standards of holiness and righteousness? Who could say what had to be done and what didn't have to be done among God's people? And for them, this was not a legal issue. Nowhere in the law of Moses did it require people to wash their hands before eating. The closest we have is the priest had to wash their hands before they entered the tent of meeting or before they offered sacrifices. But what the Pharisees had done is two things. One, they had extended the requirements of the priest to all Jews, to all the people. And then they had expanded the requirements from what was strictly required by the law of Moses to all these other rules and regulations about washing hands and taking a bath and washing pots and pans that weren't in the law of God. This was not an issue of whether or not you obey God. This is, do the Pharisees and the scribes and their rabbis have the right to set the requirements of righteousness for God's people? At the end of the day, it was an authority issue of what does it mean to obey God and who gets to determine this. And of course, this is still an issue in our church today. Uh, The Bible says that we are to be modest, but we have to decide what that looks like. Does that mean that women only wear dresses or skirts? Does that mean that shorts only come up to the knee? Uh, When the church that I was growing up in, we had to always wear jeans, even in the summer, even when we went to Six Flags. So we could always spot our church group at Six Flags because we were the only ones in 110 degrees wearing jeans and resenting every moment of it. But once you say modesty is prescribed, well, what does that look like? And we start establishing rules and regulations and expectations and standards that become traditions and pretty soon we judge one another on, your holy, whether or not you wore shorts to Six flag. Or the Bible says to revere God. But what does that mean? Does that mean I have to kneel when we pray or stand when we read the Gospels? Does that mean the guys have to take their hats off and the girls put their hats on? The Bible says revere God. The different cultures and traditions decide what does that look like practically. And the problem is the traditions of men become authoritative in a way that God never intended. And that's going to be part of the issue that we're going on here. So with that challenge, Jesus now responds to that challenge in verses 6 through 13. He said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, Isaiah twenty nine thirteen, Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Now, Jesus doesn't explain the action of his disciples. He doesn't justify them. Instead, he immediately challenges them on the things that they're doing. And when he says that Isaiah prophesied of this, this doesn't mean that Isaiah was expecting that this particular group at this particular time were saying these particular words to Jesus but rather that the things that Isaiah talked about in Isaiah 29, you're guilty of exactly those things. The people that he was denouncing there, you're guilty of just those same things. It's a warning that's enduring. And this is important because now as Jesus addresses them and confronts them, we're going to see seven warnings against religiosity, against external keeping of rules and regulations, based on religious traditions, that were an issue then as they're an issue today. Number one is the issue of hypocrisy. Jesus says, you hypocrites. This is the only time the word hypocrite occurs in the Gospel of Mark. And against these people that were very zealous in their righteousness and zealous to know the Word of God and to teach it and require it. And a hypocrite was a Greek theatrical term for someone who play-acted, for someone who pretended to be someone they weren't. And of course, this now enters into religious language of those who put up a false front, of those who pretend to be more righteous than they are. And we also have our ways of doing this. In Jesus' day, it says that they would lengthen their robes and their phylacteries, that they would be very public in their prayers. They would be very noisy in their giving. They would look very gaunt in their days of fasting because they were trying to draw attention to themselves. And of course, we do it today by uh, singing extra loud or bringing our extra full Bibles, or we were taught early that the kid with the gold stars in his Bible is better than the kid who didn't. And we also have our ways of representing ourselves as maybe more righteous than we are. Bumper stickers on our car, Uh, Something that gives me joy every week is a Christian satire site called Babylon Bee. I laugh out loud every week with Babylon Bee. I highly recommend it. But there was one this last week about a new Spotify channel for Christians that turns to Christian music as soon as you enter the church parking lot, (laughs) which is just great. So we can be rocking on with our bad self up until the parking lot, but when the other people are listening, it shifts to, you know, Amy Grant or whatever. And we do that, we represent ourselves more righteous than we are. Uh, I remember one time visiting a church in Austin that a friend went to, and this was a a more uh, exuberant form of worship. And there was a lady in front of me who was smiling and dancing and turning around and she was going, "And I love you, 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 you. And it happened to be that uh, we were parked next to each other and her demeanor could not have been more different walking out to the car. And she was downcast, and she was glum, and she was unhappy. But once she hit the threshold of the church, the smile came on, the exuberance came on, and she was acting. She was pretending to be something that she wasn't. Another form of hypocrisy is trying to hide from you just how wicked I am. And we also become very good at this. That if I can at least attend this, if I can at least make an appearance here, if I can at least stand up and go through the motions, that you'll think I'm righteous even if I'm doing reprehensible things in my life. And it's not always that deceitful knowingly, because many of, if not most, of the Pharisees and scribes were God fearing people who really did want to know and obey God's word, but they weren't doing it in accordance with God's word because all this accretion of traditions and rules and regulations based on traditions. So the tragedy is they thought themselves righteous in the eyes of God because they washed their hands and washed their bodies and washed their pots and pans when reality is that wasn't God's point at all. And we also do the same thing. That we can somehow assume that if I go to mass, if I go to confession, if I go to church, if I go to Bible study, if I do these things, that that makes me right in God's eyes. And we have a zeal without knowledge or a misunderstanding of what it takes to please God. And so the first issue when we have a religiosity based on tradition and man's rules rather than the word of God is a capacity for hypocrisy, even an encouragement of hypocrisy in various forms. Secondly, Jesus says that there is a superficiality behind external religiosity. This people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me. They come to temple, they come to tabernacle, they sing the Psalms, but in their heart, they're a million miles away. And at the end of the day, it's the heart that God cares about. Uh, Do you remember when Samuel, the prophet, was sent to find a replacement for Saul because of his sin and his pride? And he goes to Jesse and he summons his sons and he sees Eliab who's tall and handsome and strong and he says, surely this is the Lord's anointed. And the Lord said to Samuel, the Lord does not see as man sees because we judge according to appearance, but the Lord judges according to the heart. And when we make religion about external rites and practices, we can stand here singing in the sanctuary Praising or praying to God to speak to us, to transform us into the likeness of Christ. And our hearts can be a million miles away. Uh, Becca and Zach can testify that it's possible to lead in worship and your heart be somewhere else. Uh, I'll confess that it's possible to be preaching and your heart shift on you. To say something and people laugh and to say, well, that was pretty good or to all of a sudden enjoy the attention and the focus. And that's one of the reasons we try to keep our worship so simple here, is because this is where God is showcased. And we want God alone to receive the attention and the praise and the glory and the adoration. And if we are enjoying the music, but it isn't helping us enjoy God and express our adoration of Him, then it's ceased to become worship and it's become performance and entertainment. And if you're enjoying a speaker, but not really attending to the inspired words that are being spoken, then you can attend to God with your eyes and ears, but your heart be far away. And the reality is one of the great dangers for us is we master the externals of the faith and our hearts drift from God, move from God. And even as the text says, are far away from God. And that's not true religion. True religion It's about the heart, loving and praising and adoring God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. But we fall guilty of this, don't we? A third danger that Christ points out is vanity. Not in the sense of uh, wanting you to be attracted to me, but in the sense of emptiness, of worthlessness, or in the words of Christ, in vain do this people worship me. Now that's kind of a sobering thought, isn't it? That we can come here, get up on a Sunday morning, even for an 8.30 service, drive in, come in, sing the words, and God find our worship worthless, empty, void of value. If I pray aloud so that you notice me, what does it profit me according to the Sermon on the Mount? Nothing. If I make a big point of dropping in my year's worth of quarters into the toolbox so that you hear how much I gave, how much does that profit me? Nothing. If I fast in a way that draws attention to myself, what does that profit me according to God? According to Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount? Nothing. And all of these things that were meant to be expressions of praise and worship can be worthless if my heart isn't in them. And worse than that, they can even be offensive to God. Listen to the words of Isaiah chapter one as this great prophet opened the book that led to what Jesus quotes. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ears to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomor- Gomorrah. Now he's not talking about literal Sodom and Gomorrah. They were destroyed all the way back in the book of Genesis. He's calling Jerusalem. Sodom, he's calling the Israelite nation of Samaria, Gomorrah, because they had so far fallen and strayed from their God. Now listen to the words of the Lord. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? Says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of ram and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies. I can't endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They become a burden to me and I'm weary of bearing them. So that when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Now who required those sacrifices? God did. Who required those prayers? God did. Who required those full moon festivals and Sabbaths? God did. But he says, I'm tired of it. I'm fed up with it. The hypocrisy of it, that you're going to go out and live that unrighteously, that your hearts are going to be distant from me, and you're going to trample my courts and profane these things that I have given so that you could worship me. I'd rather you not come. The prophets will say, bar the doors, don't let them in, because this has become offensive to me. Then he goes on to say what he desired. Oh, but if you'll wash yourselves and make yourselves clean and remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, if you'll cease to do evil and learn to do good, to seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow, these are the things that God cared about. Then, says the Lord, though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you will consent and obey, you'll eat the best of the land. If you refuse and obey, you'll be devoured by the sword. Truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken this. What God wanted was the heart. What God wanted was the heart for God played out in a love for others in righteousness and justice. And when we just make our faith about religiosity, about I'm going to go to church and then go home and mistreat my spouse or neglect my children or go to work the next day and become a crooked businessman or a lazy student, or whatever form of sin we choose to manifest, God said, that's abhorrent to me. It was never about just going through the motions of a religious rite, of merely following the traditions of your elder. That's not what I wanted. Fourthly, another risk of religiosity based on religious tradition according to Jesus is a misemphasis on the doctrines of men, namely, teaching as doctrine the precepts of men. Now there's nothing wrong with humans making religious precepts because they're unavoidable, because the Bible is not exhaustive. We have to have certain rules and regulations, certain customs and traditions. That's not the problem. The problem becomes when you say, and this is the Word of God. And the ones saying it are speaking as though they had divine authority to be able to tell people what to do and not do as though it were the voice of God. And whether that's the Roman Catholic tradition overemphasizing the authority of the Bishop of Rome, or the Eastern Orthodox tradition overemphasizing the authority of the councils and creeds, or the Protestant tradition overemphasizing the Book of Common Prayer and the 39 articles, that if you violated it in England, you were kicked out of your church and could not live within five miles of a church and people like John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, were jailed for a dozen years in England under a Protestant authority. Or if you come up in the Wesleyan tradition and you may have heard of the Wesleyan quadrilateral, that yes, we have scripture, but we also have reason and experience and tradition and those can rise in importance till they trump scripture. Or if you're in the Bible church tradition, We can have pastors who become influential and now they dictate things that were never in God's word. The reality is this is not limited to the Jews. This is not limited to other Christians. We all have a tendency to take our words, our rules, our traditions and elevate them to the authority of God. And Jesus says, be careful with that. And that's why we have to be Bereans. We have to always evaluate everything that is said and taught against the word of God. To go back and to say, all right, you said this, but did God say? And anything that y'all hear from this pulpit or in a back classroom or from anyone in this church, you should always be evaluating against the word of God. And if anything is inconsistent or seems contrary or contradictory to what God has inspired, you need to come to us and question us and challenge us and let's walk through that. And we have to always be going back to the word of God to make sure, did God say? Is that really what that text means? Because Fred can testify, when you stand up here and says, "Thus saith the Lord," you better make sure that the Lord actually said that. Uh, part of my prayer every Sunday, when I'm down there before I come up, is I'll say, uh, "Lord, I'm called to preach today, but I'm unworthy and ill prepared for the task. But yet, for the sake of Your glory and Your people's good, would You please grant me unction so that I can teach Your word accurately, clearly." And compellingly. But the first obligation of a teacher of the Bible is accuracy. And then it has to be clear so that it's not misunderstood. And it should be compelling. It should be engaging. It should motivate us, move our hearts so that it moves our actions. But at the end of the day, no man-made rule or stricture can be held up to the same level of authority as the Word of God. And it is the responsibility of the people of God to always be going back and to say, did God say that? And if he didn't, you don't have to obey it. But if God said it, we're compelled to abide by it. Another risk is neglect. When we overemphasize the importance of what humans say and do, we neglect what God has said and said that we should do. To put more emphasis on human rules and traditions is inevitably going to lead to a neglect and an under-emphasis of what God has said to do. And so, if evangelicals get overly excited and involved in political action, that leads to a neglect of evangelism and discipleship-making. At other times and places and traditions when people said what Christianity is really about is social good works. So We've got to get out there and feed the hungry and clothe the homeless. And those are good things, but that's not primarily the obligation of the church. Our obligation is to preach the gospel and make disciples who then go out and feed the hungry and clothe the, the, the naked and give shelter to the homeless. But it's possible to get distracted and to neglect the things that God has called us to. It's possible for churches to get busy with programs and all these delightful things that we can engage in and neglect the three things that are always to be the mission of the church, of continually devoting ourselves to the Word of God and to prayer and to fellowship so that we can go out and serve God the way He's called us to. And so to overemphasize man's values and decisions and decrees is to underemphasize God's values and decisions and decrees. And so there's a mis-emphasis there. Jesus gives an example of this in verses 9 through 13. He was also saying to them, you were experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. And don't miss the sarcasm of here. What did the scribes and the Pharisees think that they were experts in? Teaching the word of God and having people obey it. What does Jesus say their true expertise is in? Setting it aside and replacing it with tradition. And now he quotes, not a rabbi, not tradition, but Moses. Moses said, honor your father and mother. And he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. So this is quoting the fifth of the ten commandments to honor your father and your mother. And that assumed that you would take care of father and mother financially as the need arose and as one was able. And to fail to do this was to speak evil of them, was to curse them. And that was a capital offense in Israel, except the Jewish religious authorities had found a loophole. They had created a way to presumably honor God, but yet keep people from giving to their father and mother. Namely, verse 11, if a man says to his father and mother, whatever I have that would help you is korban, that is, given to God. So they said a person could designate a portion of their possessions as something that would go to God someday. So let's say I took a certain portion of my savings account and said that money that I had in extra to give, I'm going to give that to God someday, which means sorry, pops, I don't have any money for you now. It's God's, which had the beauty of I get to look extra religious and righteous because I'm giving it to God, right? But I don't have to give it now. It's still in my possession. Now I can promise to give it someday and I can keep from using it to obey God's laws by taking care of my father and mother now. It's a beautiful scheme, except it offended God. <laughs> and then the religious authorities no longer permitted him to do anything for his father or mother. So let's say that the person who said, this is Corban, and then he feels convicted, and he wants to give this gift to God to his parents because they need it. The religious authorities would say, uh-uh-uh, you made a vow. You promised, this is committed, this belongs to God, and they would not permit it to give them to them, even if they wanted to afterwards. And thus, invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things like that. This is just a small sample of the ways that you not only misemphasize the word of God, you not only neglected the commands of God, but you began to abuse the word of God to your end. Notice the progression that Jesus talks about. In verse 8, he says, you neglected the commandment of God. In verse 9, he says, you pushed it aside. You didn't merely overlook it, you shoved it to the side. In verse 12, you don't permit others to obey the law. And in verse 13, what you were really doing was invalidating it. You were cutting it from the books. You were pretending as though that did not exist. And of course, we also do that, don't we? that we find ways to not only skirt obedience to the law, but to exploit it to our benefit. And so, uh, youth pastors are notorious sometimes of, I have to stay relevant with youth today. And that's why I saw this movie, listened to this music, went into this activity. Uh, Prosperity gospels, it'd be easy to make fun of them. But the reality is, we all become experts at avoiding God's laws, which in effect becomes invalidating it. Uh, When my brother was a deacon in Georgia, he gave an illustration one time. He was teaching about what pleased and displeased God. And he took a book before them, and he opened it up, and he started saying, hmm, no no fornication, no premarital sex. And he ripped it out. I think this was you. Maybe it was someone else. I gave you credit where it wasn't due. Sorry. (laughs) It just now occurred to me, this is someone else who did that. And he ripped it out. And then he said, hmm, honor your father and mother.
0: He ripped it out.
1: He turned to another. Do not cheat or deceive. He ripped it out. And of course, by this time, especially in a Baptist church in Georgia, because I think it was a southern context, people are kind of stepping back because surely lightning is going to come back and smite this guy that would tear up God's word. And then as the comfort level grew to the point where it was time for this illustration to stop, He had put a Bible-like cover over just a normal book. He wasn't tearing the Bible. But he said, the most concerning thing is that you were more concerned about my tearing up a page from a book, thinking it was the Bible, than you are about what you do when you disobey the Bible. Because in effect, what you're doing is ripping it out and pretending that that doesn't do there, and that this doesn't apply to you. And we are fixated on the wrong things on external religiosity of rituals and traditions rather than what God has required, which is heartfelt, total obedience to Him. And Jesus says, when you do that, you have moved to abusing the Word of God. So here are seven risks of religiosity based on religious traditions that Jesus warns us of in this text. Hypocrisy superficiality, going through the motions when our heart is far away, which is vain, it's worthless, it's empty, it's offensive. A misemphasis by overemphasizing the authority of men, which leads to neglect, which leads to abuse. And here's the truly tragic thing, the eternally tragic thing, it leads to a rejection of Christ and the gospel. Because what's the context of all this? They are accusing Christ, confronting Christ, challenging Christ, really rejecting Christ. Because here is the Son of God in the flesh, the anointed Messiah, doing miracles that no one can deny, and confute, telling them, repent and believe the gospel and you will receive the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. If, you're, if you do these things in secret, your Father who sees in secret will bless you. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And he's telling them what God really wanted. And they hear it, and they see it, and they can see from the Old Testament that this is in fact true. And what is their response? I don't want that religion. I want my religion. And I don't want that Messiah. I'll be my own Messiah. And I don't want that salvation. I want it on my terms and according to my definitions. And of course, that has eternal ramifications. If you give yourself to external religiosity, to going through the motions and the rituals, to a superficial, vain worship, then that is a rejection of Christ and a renunciation of the gospel, which is tragic. But Christ offers something better. Jesus offers us a gospel that allows us to be authentic, because I don't have to pretend that I'm better than I am. Uh, Those of you who know me know that I'm a sinner. Those of you who know me well and long know that I'm a terrible sinner. And as you get to know me, I'm going to let you down and hurt you because that's what sinners do. But that's not why I'm right before God. I'm right because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And I don't have to pretend. And I don't have to pretend that I'm always happy all the time. So one of my quirks is I can't sing lines of hymns that I don't believe And so, if you see me sometimes not singing, it's sometimes because I don't necessarily believe that line. And what's the the hymn that goes, and lo, I am happy all the day? I can't sing that because that's not true. I'm not happy all the day. I ought to be maybe, but I'm not. But I don't have to pretend to be, and neither do you. The gospel allows us to be real with each other because I don't have to judge you on whether or not you're keeping my rules. It's not my rules to give. If you're in Christ and I'm in Christ, we're brothers and sisters of Christ and we're family. We don't have to pretend to be anyone that we're not. I don't have to impress you. I just have to love you by God's grace. That the gospel offers heart renewal rather than a superficial, artificial religiosity. That the gospel says that if you will repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ, that we will be born again. The textual term is regenerated. We will become a new creation in Christ and God will take a heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh so that now I am enabled to love God and love others and love other believers as I'm required to do. And that's what I was made to do, which is why that kind of religion is satisfying and fulfilling and joyful and exuberant because it's from the heart and it's not just an external shell. It's not just a garment I put on on Sundays. Thirdly, that our worship can be pleasing to God. Think about that. The God who is holy, 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 the God who is celebrated constantly by cherubim and the 24 creatures and the elders, celebrated by angels, that he would take my worship and listen to it and find it pleasing. Um, There's a song from several years ago and for years I couldn't listen to it without crying. And it was called His Favorite Song of All by Phillips, Craig, and Dean. And it talked about how God loves to hear the angels sing, holy, holy, holy is the lamb. Heaven's choirs and harmonies singing praise to the great I am. But he lifts his hands for silence when the weakest saved by grace begins to sing. And a million angels listen when a newborn soul sings, I have been redeemed. And the chorus goes, for his favorite song of all is this, (laughs) I still can't say it. His favorite song of all is the song of the redeemed. When one sinner now made clean lift his voice loud and strong. That's his God's favorite. favorite song of all. Isn't that amazing? I mean, I couldn't make a church choir. <laughs> but God's going to let me join the heavenly choir? Because that's the gospel. That's the God we serve. That I can appreciate tradition without misunderstanding or misemphasizing it. That we are part of this proud heritage of 2,000 years of Christian tradition that gives us things like the Apostles' Creed and all of that is healthy and good and because I have the gospel I don't have to misunderstand it or overemphasize it. That tradition, it is said, is the living... Let me try to get this right. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. But tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism, religiosity, a misemphasis, is the dead faith of the living. I'm just echoing what other people did before me. But tradition, in an organic sense, in a living sense, is the living faith that I've inherited from the deceased, from the saints who've gone before. And that's a glorious thing. It allows me to prioritize instead of neglect the Word of God. That I'm not just going to learn books of canon law I'm not just going to learn a bunch of rules and regulations. That I don't just have to spend my morning having devotions and whatever religious stipulations my tradition belongs to. But I get to give the Word its proper focus at the center of my life. And I get to open it every day as the way that God has for me to live. And that if I walk in this and obey this, that I'll enjoy the life that God intends for me. And rather than abusing God's Word, trying to figure out how to get around it, I understand that my joy comes in my obedience. That it is never a harmful thing to obey God. But sin is always destructive. And now I get to turn to the Lord and to say, Lord, I want my life to conform to your word and to the model of your son, because as I obey that and imitate him, I will experience the joy and the fulfillment and the satisfaction that you intend for me. And now I get to look forward to obeying as the best way to live rather than figuring out ways to skirt it or hide my sin. And the gospel allows me to embrace Christ rather than reject him. And it allows me to embrace salvation by faith and enjoy a security. Because if your religiosity is based on externals, you can always forfeit. I can always make myself unclean. I forgot to wash that pot, or I didn't scour that plate enough, or I didn't get under the nails of my wash, or whatever it is, but not the gospel. That when we are placed in Christ, we can never be separated from Christ, which means we can never be separated from God. And the security and the assurance and the hope that that brings is incalculable. Why would I swap that for a man-made religiosity that puts the onus on me to obey God and to keep whatever rules the current authorities tell me to do? That's not what we want. The great example of this is the father of our own tradition, Martin Luther. And if you know the story, Martin Luther grew up in Germany, his father was a copper miner. He was educated and uh, he was getting his masters in school to become a lawyer and on his way back to the university he was caught in a lightning storm and a lightning bolt struck near him so that he was thrown from his donkey, and he cried out in terror, Saint Anne, save me! I'll become a saint! I'll become a monk. And Saint Anne was the patron saint of minors who also specialized in sudden death and thunderstorms, so it was the right saint at the right time. He survived, but he said, now I've got to become a monk, which he never really wanted to do, which his dad didn't want him to do, but he had made the vow. He had to follow through. And Luther was an assiduous monk, if the other monks fasted one day, he did three. If the other monks did a blanket winter, he went without a blanket. So that he said, if ever a monk was saved by his monkery, it would have been me. But he knew that this couldn't get him right before God. And the time came when he became not merely a monk, but a priest. He was the one who in the Roman Catholic tradition says he could elevate the elements and they would be transformed, transubstantiated into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And it was a big deal in the Roman Catholic tradition to celebrate your first Mass. Maybe like us giving our first sermon. And this is what he says about his first Mass. When I came to the words, we offer unto thee the living, the true, the eternal God. At these words, I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. Because I thought to myself, with what tongue shall I address the presence of even an earthly prince? Who am I that I should lift up my eyes or raise my hands to this divine majesty? The angels surround him. At his nod, the earth trembles. And shall I, a miserable little pygmy, say, I want this and I ask for that? For I am dust and ashes and full of sin. Who am I to speak to the living, the eternal, and the true God? He knew that as perfect a monk as he could become was not going to make him righteous before a perfectly righteous God that he could do everything right according to the standards of righteousness of the church grave, and it wasn't going to make righteous before a holy God. And then one day, he was wrestling with the theme verse of the book of, the book of Romans, uh, Romans 1, 16 and 17. But I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to those who believe. For in it, the power are, uh, for in, uh, As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And this is Luther's words again. I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans. And I thought I did except for that one expression, the justice of God by faith. My situation was this, that although an impeccable monk, he had his religiosity down, he had the traditions down. I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience. And I had no confidence that my merit, his keeping all the rules, would satisfy God. And therefore I did not love a just and angry God but hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to that dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. God declares us righteous because of our faith in Jesus Christ. We enter into a right standing with the Holy God because we have been forgiven by Jesus Christ and His righteousness is reckoned our account. Then I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. Whereas before the justice of God filled me with hate and fear, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul, Romans 1, 17, became to me the gate into heaven. And then here's his word to to us. If you have a true faith that Christ is your savior, then at once you have a gracious God. For faith leads you in and opens up God's heart and will that you should see pure grace and overflowing love. This it is to behold God in faith, that you should look upon him and see his fatherly, friendly heart in which there's no anger, No ungraciousness. Because he who is in Christ that sees God as still angry does not see him rightly, but looks as though a dark cloud had been drawn across his face. There is no man-made religion that will get us right with God. There is no religious tradition. There is no religiosity. There is no keeping up these standards of righteousness that one, we ever would keep or could keep, or that even if we did, would satisfy the holy God. But God in his great love and mercy has made a way for us that he sent his son to keep the law perfectly so that his righteousness could be treated as ours. And he died on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins that we committed so that we could be forgiven. And God the just could be satisfied to look on Jesus and pardon us. That's the gospel. That's Christianity. That's the religion we want. Not any superficial religion that we have to do and keep. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we confess that in various ways we are all guilty of hypocrisy and superficiality that produces vain worship and a mis-emphasis on human authority and a neglect of your word and an abuse of your commands which in effect is a renunciation and a rejection of Christ and the gospel. So forgive us, but we do thank you that that is not what puts us in a right standing with you. That is not what Christianity is. That is not what true religion is, but rather that sinners can be forgiven and adopted into the family of God if they will but repent of their sins and embrace Jesus as their savior and be born again to become a new creation, to worship you rightly, until that glorious day when we worship you directly, face to face. Grant us grace to walk in this, to share this, until the day that we enjoy this. And we'll ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.